Welcome to Radar Contact, the audio show that teaches pilots how to speak professionally and with confidence to air traffic control. And now, here's your host, airline pilot, author, and host of ATCCommunication.com, Jeff Canarish. We're going to do a little something different this month. We're going to begin the show with your question of the week. I posted this question a few days ago in a regular post at atccommunication.com and at my Twitter feed. Since you've had time to look at the question at one of these locations, we might as well get right to it. The question I posted at the website and at my Twitter feed was, ATC has told you to maintain 3,000 feet. If you allowed your aircraft to drift above 3,000 feet at what indication on your altimeter, that's on your altimeter, would ATC consider you to be off your assigned altitude? Here's the answer. ATC will consider you off your assigned altitude when your altimeter reads 3,250 feet. Here's why. An air traffic controller will consider you off altitude if the data block attached to your aircraft on his radar screen shows you 300 feet or more above or below your assigned altitude. That 300-foot limit comes straight out of the Air Traffic Controller's Regulation Joint Order 7110.65, and specifically in Section 5-2-17, Paragraph A. Okay, if the magic number is 300 feet above or below your assigned altitude, why did I say in our example, if your assigned altitude is 3,000, ATC is going to give you a call when your altimeter rises through 3,250 feet? The reason is, ATC's computer system rounds to the nearest 100-foot increment. If, for example, your altimeter reads 3,120 feet, your air traffic controller is going to see an altitude readout for your aircraft on his screen that says 3,100 feet. If your altimeter rises to 3,150 feet, he's going to see 3,200 on his screen. Now, let's throw some qualifiers in here because I'm really being kind of simplistic in my explanation. First, it's really not your altimeter that's reporting your altitude to ATC. It's your transponder's mode C feature that's giving the report. If your altimeter disagrees with your mode C, ATC may get an off-altitude alert earlier or later than 3,250 feet. So this question was really an exercise in the details of mode C altitude reporting. I strongly recommend that you don't run an experiment in your aircraft to see exactly what altitude ATC warns you that you are off. Now, what happens when that off-altitude alert does happen? As soon as your controller sees you are off your assigned altitude, the first thing he is going to do is restate your assigned altitude and give you the current altimeter setting. Then he'll tell you what he sees on his radar display, and it'll all sound something like this. Cessna 9130 Delta, maintain 3,000, Washington altimeter 3001, I show you at 3,300. Why does he immediately give you the local altimeter setting? Well, your transponder's mode C reports your altitude calibrated to the standard barometric setting of 29.92, regardless, regardless of what you have set in your altimeter. Wait, I know what you're thinking. Stay with me and I'll explain. ATC's radar system receives your transponder's mode C information and converts it to an altitude 
based on the local altimeter setting. <laughs> I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous. And don't ask me why it's done this way, but that's how it works. You fly according to what you see on your altimeter. Your mode C reports based on 2992. ATC's computer takes that altitude report based on 2992 and adjusts it up or down based on the local altimeter setting. So, as long as you and your air traffic controller are working from the same barometric setting, your altimeter reading should match what your controller sees on his radar display. Now, we know that isn't always true. ATC allows plus or minus 200 feet of slop between what you see versus what he sees on his screen. When the difference reaches 300 feet, that's when the controller will speak up. There's a reason why I went through this extended explanation. You probably want to know what the consequences are for straying from your assigned altitude. Do you immediately earn yourself a violation from the FAA? Well, not necessarily. I already told you the first thing that happens when an air traffic controller gets an off-altitude alert for your aircraft is the controller will give you the local altimeter and tell you what he sees for an altitude readout. Basically, he's giving you the benefit of the doubt. Initially, it's assumed that you are still on or close to your assigned altitude and either you have the wrong barometric setting in your altimeter or your transponder's mode C is reporting your altitude incorrectly. If you tell the controller you are either on altitude or within 200 feet of being on altitude and you have the correct altimeter setting dialed in, the controller will simply tell you to turn your mode C off. He will then rely on you giving him updates on your altitude as other traffic approaches your vicinity. If you are actually off your assigned altitude and everything else is working correctly, you should tell the controller you are correcting back to your assigned altitude. What happens after that depends on the circumstances. If your being off altitude causes no conflict with other traffic, that should be the end of the problem. You'll correct back to 3,000 and you're on your way like nothing happened. If you do drift off altitude and cause a loss of separation with other aircraft, you can count on hearing it from the FAA at some time later. I can't give you the specifics of what the FAA may do in follow-up action because I've never been there myself. I can tell you what to do to help protect yourself if you ever do inadvertently fly off altitude and ATC asks you about it. File a report with the Aviation Safety and Reporting System within 10 days of the incident. When you file an ASRS report within 10 days of the incident, your report should give you immunity from a violation by the FAA if it's determined you reported the incident honestly and with the intention of learning something from the error. The FAA also makes sure that you don't have a history of flying infractions and that you didn't willfully commit a violation or fly recklessly. You can learn the full details of the FAA's immunity policy by going to the ASRS website, and I'll leave a link to that in the show notes for this show. Again, If your flight off altitude did not cause a traffic conflict, it's likely the air traffic controller will not report the deviation and the incident will end there. However, my recommendation would be to fill out an ASRS report regardless of the circumstances to cover your backside just in case. The question and all the issues surrounding it was already thoroughly examined at my Twitter feed over the preceding days. 
We have anywhere from eight to 10 air traffic controllers and a whole bunch of high time and low time pilots who join me in conversation on ATC procedures and techniques on Twitter. You can follow along and add your own two cents worth by going to twitter.com slash ATC underscore Jeff. You may also follow my Twitter feed and hear what's on the minds of air traffic controllers, plus get my tips and techniques for ATC communication by clicking on the Twitter icon in the right-hand margin of any page at my website at atccommunication.com. And by the way, if you're listening to this broadcast on iTunes, you can find all the show notes for this show at atccommunication.com. Let's keep going with the discussion of ATC radar because it has its limitations. Those limitations will be going away starting about five years from now when ATC's next-gen version of air traffic control goes into full effect. I'll talk about that in a minute. The radar currently used by ATC interrogates your transponder at intervals. For en route radar, those interrogations happen every 4.6 seconds when you're flying at or below 18,000 feet, or more accurately, flight level 180. Above flight level 180, ATC radar pings your transponder once every 12 seconds. The latest version of ATC's en route radar system called ERAM, that's E-R-A-M, has the capability to integrate the data from several neighboring radars into a data flow that gives updates on a flight's progress at one-second intervals. But for some reason, the FAA has this radar integration feature of ERAM currently turned off. So the 4.6-second or 12-second rule still applies for radar updates. Here's what this means for you. When you're flying in a climb or descent and you report the altitude you are passing, for example, Cessna 9130 Delta passing 4,300 climbing to 5,000, what an air traffic controller sees on his screen for your altitude may be different from what you report. If you report passing 4,300, it may be another 4 to 5 seconds before ATC's radar interrogates your transponder's mode C. By the time the controller gets an altitude update for your aircraft, he may see 4,600 on his screen. For this reason, controllers need a report of the altitude you are passing when you first check in. As I said, this whole problem of radar lag should go away in less than five years. At that point, the FAA will begin to phase out air traffic control by radar in favor of air traffic control via ADS-B. You may already know a little bit about ADS-B. If you have all or part of the system installed on your aircraft, you may know a whole lot about it. I'm not going to get too geeky in the explanation of the system. Let's just cover the highlights and see how they're going to affect you and your airplane. First, what is ADS-B? The acronym stands for Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. As the name implies, the components of the system operate automatically. The system depends on the input of GPS and, in some cases, an aircraft's flight management system, which is a fancy term for an onboard navigation computer. The surveillance portion of the system tracks an aircraft's flight path in three dimensions, similar to the capability of radar. The B in ADS-B means broadcast, and this is the most intriguing part of the system because all of the information it gathers 
and then retransmits is available to everyone equipped to receive it. This means not only can ATC track airplanes, but you can too as well if you have the proper equipment to receive and interpret ADSB transmissions. I'll talk about how that works in a minute. First, let's break this down into the two primary modes of ADSB. There is something the FAA inventively calls ADSB out. The current equivalent of ADSB out is your aircraft's transponder. Like your transponder, ADSB out reports your aircraft's position, altitude, and ground speed by taking data from an onboard GPS unit and sending it out as a radio transmission. ADSB out may be received by ground-based antennas and by aircraft equipped to receive a rebroadcast of ADSB transmissions. There are many advantages to tracking aircraft via ADSB versus the current radar systems used by the FAA. First, ADSB transmits flight data on a nearly continuous basis. Unlike radar, which updates flight data for aircraft in 4 or 12 second intervals, as we discussed earlier, ADSB provides updates at 1 second intervals. If you were an air traffic controller, would you rather see what an aircraft is doing once per second? or once every 12 seconds. Like radar, ADSB can only transmit to a certain distance. However, the cost to install an antenna to receive ADSB is only a fraction of what it costs to install a radar site. This means the proliferation of receiving antenna across the country means there will be no gaps in coverage of aircraft as there currently is for radar. Radar, for example, has a limitation that when an aircraft is flying at low altitude over mountainous terrain, that mountainous terrain may cause backscattering of the radar, effectively blanking out that airplane's radar return, or it may create what is called a radar shadow where the radar just can't penetrate the rock and see what's on the other side of the mountain. Those limitations aren't a problem with ADS-B because you can put antenna on the mountaintop and basically receive aircraft input from just about anywhere. In fact, ADSB receiving equipment is so inexpensive, you can right now buy or build your own ground-based setup to track aircraft passing over your home. Additionally, ADSB also allows for tracking of aircraft over oceans beyond the range of radar. Not only is this possible, it's already in use by aircraft flying transoceanic flights. In fact, it's been in use for the last two years. Here's what I think is the best part of ADSB for pilots. It's called ADSB in, and not surprisingly, that's the opposite of ADSB out. If you equip your aircraft with ADSB in, you can get a picture of aircraft in your area similar to what ATC gets. What and how you receive traffic information will be specific to the equipment you have installed in your aircraft. And at present, there are two types of information services that will allow you to see traffic in your area. TISB, or Traffic Information Services Broadcast, allows you to display traffic information in your cockpit for aircraft that are not ADSB equipped, but do have a transponder and are in radar contact. In this case, radar targets tracked by ATC system are uplinked to your aircraft so you can get a picture of traffic similar to what an air traffic controller sees on his radar screen. ADSBR is a rebroadcast service of ADS 
that allows you to see other aircraft transmitting flight data out via ADS-B. Think of ADS-R as a relay station that allows one aircraft to share its flight data with another aircraft independent of radar. Both type of traffic services cover a limited area. When properly equipped, you will be able to see traffic around you out to 15 nautical miles plus or minus 3,500 feet of your current altitude. Another great feature of ADSB is called FISB, or Flight Information Services Broadcast. As the name implies, FISB allows you to receive information relevant to your flight. You will be able to receive virtually any information currently provided by a flight service station. This includes airmets, sigmets, NOTAMs, pyreps, winds and temperature aloft, and the list goes on. I think one of the best features of FISB is the ability to receive graphical weather data, meaning images sourced from NEXRAD weather radar. To be sure, the weather radar images you receive are not updated at the same frequency as having an actual weather radar installed on your aircraft. Presently, the weather radar data you receive on board is updated every 5 to 15 minutes, depending on the area of coverage. So, depending on your timing, you may be looking at a weather picture that has changed over the last several minutes since it was originally uplinked to your onboard equipment. I'll acknowledge there are also other commercial subscription services currently available that also provide weather data if you carry a tablet computer on board. Since our primary focus in this show is ATC communication and ATC services, I'll leave it up to you to do your own homework if you're interested in other weather-related services. The point I want to make today is the nature of air traffic control and how you fit into it will be changing in the coming years. Having the big picture of other aircraft around you just makes more sense. When flying VFR, the big picture from ADS-B will help you clear for other traffic with more than just your eyeballs. While ADS-B services are available right now, you are not required to have the equipment installed on your aircraft. But beginning January 1st, 2020, any pilot who wants to participate in ATC services will be required to have at least ADS-B out installed in his or her aircraft. Even if you choose not to get in contact with ATC, you will still be required to have ADS-B out installed and operating when flying in positively controlled airspace and, in some instances, near positively controlled airspace. I'll have a complete list in the show notes for this show describing the airspace where you will be required to use ADS-B out by January 1st, 2020. All right, I'll admit, I've only scratched the surface on how next-gen air traffic control will affect you when it comes fully online in about five years. If you want to look at the full story, and believe me, it's quite extensive, go to the FAA's website at faa.gov and enter NextGen in the search box. This will bring up a NextGen homepage that leads to pages and pages of text, video, and graphics that fully describes all aspects of the FAA's plans for the future. You'll find a lot of NextGen applies more to airline operations than to general aviation. But since, as a general aviation pilot, 
you often have to fly in the neighborhood of airliners, it might be well worth your time to look through the FAA's full rundown of next-gen features. If you've been following me on Twitter and at atccommunication.com, you know I've been working on a new book about radio communication for pilots who are either instrument rated or working on their instrument rating. This new book is called Radio Mastery for IFR Pilots. I'm in the final phases of publishing the book. All that remains is to touch up the final draft and add illustrations and charts to the pages. I'm shooting for a publishing date of July 1st, but that date is beginning to look doubtful right now. I'm currently undergoing transition training from the 767-400 to the Boeing 757 and 767ER category at my airline. While I was previously on the 75 and 76 for 12 years, I have been off that aircraft for two years as I flew the 767-400 exclusively. Transition training, while not as intense as the training for initial qualification on a new aircraft, does take some concentration. This is going to take me out of the book writing business for a few days. The published date for Radio Mastery for IFR pilots may have to be slipped. By the way, I appreciate those who congratulated me on moving to the 757 and 767. Let me tell you, you congratulated me on a downgrade. While the 767-400 first came online about 15 years ago, the 757 and 767-300 have been around for more than 25 years. Many controls and operations on the 767-400 that are fully automated are actually manually controlled on the 757 and the 767-300. It's like, I don't know, changing from a high-tech car to a Flintstone mobile. Well, it's not that bad. All the Boeing products are fantastic, reliable airplanes, and I know, wah, wah, wah. I'm sure there are plenty of pilots out there that dream of flying a 757, and I'm sounding like a spoiled kid. Poor me. I have to fly an airplane that others dream of flying. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and by the way, I have no one to blame but myself for this move. I'm changing my home base of airports where the 767-400 does not operate, so I had to give it up. Geez, how did I get off on this tangent anyways? Oh yeah, the book. <laughs> Look for it on Amazon.com next month. I'll have plenty of announcements at atccommunication.com, Twitter, and probably on Facebook as well when the book is out. Before we wrap this up, you've probably heard about an incident at Midway Airport in Chicago a few days ago involving two airliners that began simultaneous takeoff rolls on intersecting runways. Fortunately, the controller in Midway Tower stopped the aircraft before they had a chance to meet each other at the intersection. The flights were Southwest 3828 and Delta 1328. You'll notice 3828 and 1328 sound very similar. Normally, when an air traffic controller notices two call signs on the frequency that sound similar, he will say, for example, Delta 1328 Southwest 3828 is also on the frequency. Use caution for similar sounding call signs. He will then say the same thing to the pilots of the Southwest flight. Both flight crews would acknowledge the call sign similarity, and hopefully both would pay close attention to the distinction and call signs on the radio. Also, most air traffic controllers would say something to help distinguish one call sign from the other. For example, the controller may repeat the airline name like this, Southwest, Southwest 3828. 
or the controller might add the destination Southwest 3828 headed to Dallas and then finishes transmission. It's not clear from early reports whether the controller in Midway Tower was using any of these techniques, but there is a takeaway from this that applies to us. When you are flying and there is another aircraft on the frequency with a similar sound and call sign, whether ATC warns you about it or not, always use your full call sign. Never abbreviate it, and especially don't drop the maker model from your call sign and just say the numbers and letters. Always say your full call sign, including your aircraft's maker model, to help distinguish it from the other aircraft that has the similar sound and call sign. If ATC uses your abbreviated call sign, well then you may follow up by using it as well, but still be sure to include your aircraft's maker model, not just the last three numbers and letters of your call sign. I've been preaching this for years at atccommunication.com, so nothing new here. But this recent incident at Midway is an important lesson on exactly why the correct use of your call sign is so important. As a last word on the subject, I'll turn it over to Heather McNevin, an air traffic controller at Minneapolis Center, who said this on Twitter recently, quote, when talking to ATC, remember to use your call sign every time, and she capitalized the word every, remember to use your call sign every time. My perspective is I'm talking to 20 people at any given time, end quote. Music for the show is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com on a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. If you're flying this week, I hope you have a great time and beautiful weather. I'm Jeff Canarish for ATCCommunication.com saying be well, keep in touch, and fly safe.